Welcome, everybody, and thanks so much to all of you for plugging in. There are something like 9,000 plus people scattered across the world who are engaging with us in this conversation today. I am David Theo Goldberg, the director of the University of California Humanities Research Institute, which spans the University of California. I wish to welcome this vast group of people into our forum, the fire this time, race at the boiling point. The circumstances we face collectively make this discussion as necessary as it is painful, but also hope producing. I wanna begin by acknowledging the ongoing and completely unresolved struggle of graduate students across the University of California, most notably, but not only at UC Santa Cruz, to achieving living conditions conducive to studying, justice in the face of repressive policing and disciplinary action, and equality for all. The repression and sustained injustices that the COLA students have faced is more readily consistent with the repression we are seeing on the streets and in squares across the country today than the commitment to what a university should be and of this university system and its campuses to their own stated principles. The impacts have fallen especially hard on students and faculty of color. All participants today express solidarity with and continue to work for justice for our students. For more information, please look to strikeuniversity.org. The program today and its platform of presentation are being supported by grant funds from the Mellon Foundation, and we thank them. A quick expression of profound gratitude to all those who have made this possible, working round the clock for this past week. All the UCHRI staff, in the interest of time, I won't name my wonderful colleagues, as well as the extraordinary group of panelists. When I approached each of them last weekend, they agreed without a moment's hesitation. Testament to the pressing questions we face today. That the live audience numbers in the many thousands and is spread out across the country and globally indicates the intense hunger to have us think together. And this in itself should give us profound hope. This is intended as the first in a series of such conversations. We are planning the next to be on considerations of movement in all its complex considerations and iterations. We also have an ongoing series on our publishing platform Foundry the ongoing series on race, inequality, and COVID on our publishing platform has forthcoming contributions from terrifically insightful analysts globally, as well as um, set, a set of issues on race and health being put together by colleagues at UC Santa Cruz. Event and publication updates can be found at uchri.org, and you can sign up there for our newsletter. We have turned off chat for all the obvious reasons, given the topics under discussion and our wonderful panel. We thank, we thank those who have taken the time already to send us questions. You can continue to pose questions if you are on the Zoom platform. We would appreciate your doing so in the first 40 minutes to give time to organize those questions for our panelists. We apologize in advance that given the volume, we might not be in a position to address your question. It might be part of a cohering bundle. So listen up and listen carefully. The event is being recorded and will be available for further engagement shortly. 
Now, it is my great pleasure to introduce our moderator today, the incomparable Herman Gray, Professor Emeritus at UC Santa Cruz, a most insightful and incisive analyst of race, media, culture, and most recently of post-raciality and its racial expressions. There is no one we would want more to navigate the entangled and embattled mapping of the complexities we face together today. Herman, the floor is yours. Thank you. Thank you, David. And uh, thank uh, uh, those of you who joined us and thank our, uh, our panelists. Um, of course, we're here because of, of the public lynching of Ahmed Aubrey, Brianna Taylor, George Floyd, and David McEntee. In addition to 10 days of demonstrations in all 50 states and around the world, um, the funeral of George Floyd yesterday, um, and the continuing protests um, in the streets of uh, the United States and around the world. Um, in a time of COVID, I think it's apt to raise this question of the fire this time. Uh, I'd like to introduce our panelist. Um, Gay Teresa Johnson is uh, an associate professor of African-American of uh, African-American studies and Chicano and Chicano studies, Chicano and Chicano studies at UCLA. She writes and teaches on race and racism, cultural history, spatial politics, and political economy. She's the author of Spaces of Conflict, Sounds of Solidarity, Race, and Spatial Entitlement in Los Angeles, and the co-editor of a volume called Futures of Black Radicalism. Welcome, Gay. Um, Next, we're joined by Josh Kuhn, who's a professor and chair of cross-cultural communication and director of the School of Communication at the University of Southern California. Kuhn is an award-winning cultural historian, critic, and curator, a, 19, a 2016 MacArthur Fellow. And Josh specializes in the intersection of the arts, culture, and politics with an emphasis on popular music. We're also joined by um, Angela Davis, Angela Davis is a distinguished professor emerita of history of consciousness and feminist studies at the University of California, Santa Cruz. Um, she is known internationally for her ongoing work as an advocate of prison abolition and as a powerful critic of racism and criminal justice and the criminal justice system. Her articles and essays have appeared in numerous journals and anthologies, and she is the author of nine books, including the classic Women, Race, and Class, Blues Legacies, and Black Feminism, and Are Prisons Obsolete? Welcome, Angela. Um, and finally, we're joined by Robin D.G. Kelly. Uh, Robin is a distinguished professor and Gary B. Nash Endowed Chair in the United States History at the University of California, Los Angeles. Uh, Kelly's research has explored the history of social movements in the United States, the African diaspora, and Africa black intellectuals, visual culture, contemporary urban studies, poverty studies, and ethnography. Uh, welcome to you all, and thank you for joining us. Um, in opening us up, we were kicking around a couple of uh, phrases, um, including uh, the phrase attributed to Antonio Gramsci around the pessimism of the intellect and the optimism of the will, and I think it captures what we were going for in uh, David's opening remarks about opportunity and crisis. So I wanna 
propose that we begin with uh, trying to think about um, this moment that we're in. And, and I wanted to pull on the um, incredible insights and the incredible language of I can't breathe as a kind of opening comment. Um, and both Imani Perry and Ashil Bem have sort of talked about breath and breathing. It's a powerful expression of the conditions that define this moment of crisis and opportunity. So I think about breath in terms of environment and polluted air and the environmental degradation that poor and brown people have to live through. Breath and breathing as the terms to understand the devastating kind of health impacts of the pandemic of COVID-19, which disproportionately attacks black and brown people, particularly around respiratory systems in urban populations and vulnerable populations. Uh, breath also expresses the constricted air available to black men, women, and children at the hands of police through illegal tactics like chokeholds and uh, knees to the neck. Breath is uh, constricted because of the stresses and strains that parents, grandparents, partners, uh, whose daily life is often relegated to kind of overcrowded and under-resourced condition or in detention centers where families are separated. Uh, and the joys of childhood are exchanged for the skills of everyday survival. So breath is one of those terms that I think is really uh, apropos for getting us started. One of the frameworks for, for what we want to do today is to really think together about the spaces of possibility, not only to understand this moment or at least try to make sense of it, but also to understand the moments that it conditions as well. So I want to begin by asking, um, both Angela and Robin and all of our guests to think about the ways in which the present is sort of fraught with, uh, you know, narrow speculation and guesses uh, about what's going on. So the ways that economics, environment, COVID and racism come together to produce this, this moment is what I want to try to understand and have us kind of think together about. So um, Angela, um, I wonder if you have some thoughts about how to think about the link between these um, intersecting and interlocking um, conditions that we're now facing. You know, I've been thinking a lot about a conversation I had with a group of students at um, at the University of uh, Missouri, you remember the uprisings there that led to the chancellor and uh, the president resigning, uh, the athletes became involved. I visited with them shortly after that very dramatic moment and many of them were extremely depressed um, because they had lost the intensity of the moment. Uh, and. Um, the conversation I had with them involved thinking deeply about the meaning of protests. Uh, uh, I like John Berger's notion of uh, the demonstrations being rehearsals for revolution. Uh, um, but at the same time, of course, uh, this very intense moment will not last. Uh, it will be over. It will be over sooner rather than later. And I think it's important to reflect on um, what um, helps to create such a moment and 
how we act in the aftermath of that moment. Uh, I, 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 I think that um, it's important, especially for activists uh, who often find themselves extremely um, depressed about the lack of attention to the work that they're doing. Uh, uh, and at, sometimes it takes a year, five years, 10 years, 20 years for the consequences of that work to uh, help create a conjuncture such as the one we are currently experiencing. Uh, so I think it's important um, as we attempt to reflect on uh, this moment to keep both the past and the future, the, the, as you point, pointed out, the conditions that rendered this particular conjuncture possible and how we might imagine uh, the aftermath, the work that we have to continue to do, the intellectual work that we have to continue to do in the aftermath. Uh, so, yeah, yeah, no, I want to build on that. That's especially on the question of longe longevity. Um, but before I do that, let me just acknowledge three things. And this all has to do with longevity. One uh, is the, I just want to thank again the COLA organizers for allowing us and working with us to, to do this because they're involved in a long term struggle to try to, to improve the conditions for graduate students and restore those who were fired. And I think that it's important that, you know, whatever hits them, we have to still maintain solidarity with that struggle, including what may be an impending, or not impending, but now ongoing boycott of the University of California system. Uh, secondly, today marks, um, you know, June 5th is the fourth anniversary of the passing of, of my teacher and someone, someone who was influential for all of us, Cedric Robinson. And Cedric, you know, taught us a lot about racial capitalism, about the black radical tradition as again, a long-term struggle. And this is what Angela's getting at. You have to think in long terms, uh, those ebbs and flows. And Cedric taught us a lot about fascism. <laughs> and I'm really encouraging people to go back and read him on fascism, which leads me to the third thing I want to acknowledge before I answer the question, which is, you know, this is also the last day of action um, in a week-long period of action organized by the Movement for Black Lives, dedicated specifically to ending the war on Black people. And part of what we're here to do is talk about the peace dividend that, would, that could be spent if we can end this war on Black people. Now, the COVID uh, pandemic, you know, in many ways lays bare this ongoing war. And so, as Angela talked about this ongoing struggle, um, there's this ongoing war that preceded COVID-19, um, the devastating impact, for example, of the pandemic has had on the sort of pre-existing conditions of racism, for example. Uh, you know, we die in higher rates, uh, nursing homes, we die in prisons and jails uh, because we're caged. We, we suffer from you know, low-wage jobs, jobs in, job insecurity. All this is about to kind of long-term struggle that pre-existed that and made the pandemic, uh, the pandemic exacerbated those conditions. But we're also dealing with an ongoing war that includes the acceleration of border closings, more barriers to asylum seekers, expanded immigrant detention, uh, the 
the ignoring or elimination of labor laws as retail and warehouse workers in Amazon and Instacart, you know, gig workers struggle not just to keep their jobs, but to not be infected. Meatpacking industry fighting, you know, workers in the meatpacking industry fighting for their lives uh, as they're dealing with the highest infection rates. Um, Indian country as the epicenter of the coronavirus. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and that's not simply because the coronavirus, that has to do with centuries of federal government's continued legacy of neglect, dispossession, and enclosure. We've seen a spike in anti-Asian racism, uh, which of course exacerbated by COVID-19, but pre-existed that moment. Um, and, and really important to acknowledge is we have a spike in cases of domestic violence all over the world, not just the United States, and this was a problem before the pandemic, and it's something that can't be set aside or seen as a pandemic problem. It's something to be fought all the time. And finally, the shift to authoritarian regimes, uh, not just here in the United States, but mm -hmm. uh, elsewhere, in the rise of racist nationalism, misogyny, femicide, all of this, uh, was the catastrophe we were fighting before this. And so the moment we're in is a moment where we not only continue to fight these things, but COVID in some ways and the, 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 the murders, uh, the most recent set of murders, uh, George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, uh, you know, um, uh, uh, all, all those murders in some respects then lay bare the intensity of this struggle and what we need to do next and actually offers possibilities that may not have been evident before mm -hmm. this moment. Mm -hmm. I wonder if... Um, Gay and, and Josh might uh, pick up on a couple of those themes, particularly um, around young people and the kind of courage and risk, right? There's this, this incredible anger and incredible courage to be out in the street um, and to, to express the frustration and anger and the kinds of risks that, that they're facing by COVID. And linked to that, um, the kind of militarization of the border that we've seen and the ways in which sort of the border has become a kind of rehearsal for a lot of what we're seeing now. So, so maybe um, Gay and Josh, you want first, Gay? Yes, thank you. Um, it's so great to be here in conversation with everyone. And I also want to just um, say before I start that I'm so grateful to all of the movements, all of the people who have been working for so many years, for decades, to envision and imagine a new world, who have been ready for this moment, who have many of the answers that we seek and because of all of the, um, because of all of that work, we are here. And because of all of that work, we have something that we can look to uh, for the future. And a lot of that work has to do with this ongoing struggle that Angela and Robin were talking about. And really it's kind of the depths of what we have um, experienced over many, I mean, from this whole hundreds of years of pandemic of racism uh, that we've experienced. Um, we see in the last 10 days in particular, the grief that is laid bare um, by these public lynchings. We see the criminalization of the unprotected, even in the worst of, of times. We see also the ways that there's a calculus around human worth that renders us in many respects worthless, our lives, our dreams, and those kinds of things. Um, but what we really want to get across, I think, what especially young people are teaching us 
um, to get across and people who have been in these movements and doing this work are teaching us to get across here is a different kind of calculus of human work. One that is predicated on our humanity, one that is clear and never doubts um, our, our presence, our value in these struggles, but also just because we live and breathe back to this question of breathing, just that we draw in breath that makes us deserve to be here. So I really want to also think about when we think of ongoing struggle, the things that are to be learned in that struggle, which is the power of what Cedric Robinson brought to us, was that we may only have a kind of promise, as he and Elizabeth wrote about, um, a promise of liberation, but we always have in the struggle, we always have the lessons that we need in order to get free, all of us together. So all of the things that are happening right now, while they are um, incredibly concerning, they're also, as we all know, incredibly hopeful and powerful. And I'm so proud to be a part of these communities because it makes me feel uh, like it makes me feel different, I think, than a lot of people who don't have community, who don't have these conversations, who don't have a sense of this in context. So in many respects, just speaking to the people who are continuing to have these conversations, Black Lives Matters protests that happen every week, regardless of all of the things that have happened in the last 10 days, people have been protesting police brutality and um, this kind of social world of death that um, people have used to profit off of our bodies, the ways that our suffering as black and brown people, as trans people, um, is met with skepticism as if the burden of proof is on our humanity. And we refuse that. And they have refused that over and over again. So that has always been happening. So the fact that we are here today to be able to lift those things up and to understand ongoing struggle as something that is a, a well of resource for us to learn from is something I'm very grateful for. Thank you. Josh, you want to? Sure. I can in? pick up on the, on the yeah. question about the border. Yeah. Um, first, let me just say it's an, it's a, a deep um, honor uh, to be here uh, in conversation with you all. Um, everyone on this panel have been teachers of mine in all kinds of different ways. Um, and I'm just really grateful to, to, listen to you all and learn, keep learning. Um, the militarization of the U.S.-Mexico border and the, the very growth of the U.S.-Mexico border um, as, a, as part, as a centerpiece of the surveillance and security and enclosure complex um, is very much a part of what's been happening um, long before this moment, certainly, uh, in terms of um, the converged uh, efforts to police black and brown bodies um, and to create a culture of enclosure and containment. But certainly in the last two months, three months, um, under the pandemic, uh, and now over the past 10 days um, of protests and demonstrations, um, the border complex uh, has increased its presence in, in very visible ways that we're seeing right now um, throughout the United States. Um, we all know that the Border Patrol and um, you know, that in 92, the Border Patrol was used in Los Angeles um, to become part of the work of the LAPD in cleaning up the streets and deporting Latinos um, uh, from Los Angeles. Um, Homeland Security and ICE uh, have been um, very much integrated into um, national and domestic um, forces of policing. 
Um, this is this has been ongoing. It's the same. It's the same now. Um, and I, I also want to emphasize that all these conversations about linking um, what's been happening in terms of the U.S.-Mexico border and anti-immigrant um, actions um, are also, you know, next week. I believe will, you know, we, we're, we're hearing will be the week when you know the, the Supreme Court rules on DACA, um, and I think we all need to be ready for um, a new week of conversations like this around solidarity movements, um, um, new waves of protests um, that link up and connect. Also, Pride is next week, making all kinds of these connections um, that, that, that are crucially important. I just wanted to mention one other quick thing about this on the border front is that um, I, I did some work with the photographer uh, Richard Misrak, um, who spent most of the Obama years uh, photographing the militarization of the U.S.-Mexico border. Um, and all along that, the 2,000 miles that he traveled uh, up and down that wall, um, he also found other things while trying to photograph the militarized border. He found rocks and canyons all over uh, the southern, southwestern United States um, that were spray painted with anti-Black messages, with hate speech, with white supremacist messaging, with KKK messaging. Uh, anti-Obama messaging. Um, and it was, I think, a really important um, reminder and a prophecy uh, of the way these linked um, systems of hate and terror um, are actually written on the walls. Um, they're actually written on the landscape. They're written on the land that's already stolen, that's already been written over and erased. Um, and it's all there for us to connect those dots. Um, and I think that the way that the, the networking of domination and violence happens, requires a networking of resistance and opposition and solidarity and alliance. Those two networks have to be met head on with the same level of coalition building, the same level of convergence together. Angela, earlier you mentioned um, the, the importance of a kind of international and global perspective that we shouldn't be so kind of myopic and Concern. So, so, and I know you've been in conversation with uh, communities in different parts of the world, and I, I wonder if we can kind of also draw some insight from both the the kinds of support and alliances that we see around the world, but also the role of the struggles and the kinds of uh, the kinds of resistances that we see here in relationship to there, but also there in relationship to here. Well. Obviously, the response to the lynchings in this country over the last period have been felt all over the world. Um, and I, I, um, I think it's important that we remember that racism is not simply a domestic problem, that we are confronting racism, racial capitalism, uh, uh, of course, um, uh, we're very, uh, we're very thankful to have this notion of racial capitalism, which uh, allows us to think race as interwoven into the very system that uh, uh, is um, responsible for the range of problems we're um, focused on in this country. And um, yeah, I I was. Um, having a long conversation 
with academics and activists in the state of Amazonas, uh, Brazil, yesterday. So they are um, not only addressing the problem of police racism, police violence, and of course, we think that um, uh, we have a major problem in this country. In Brazil, 4,000 people were killed by the police last year, the militarization of the police. Uh, Marielle Franco, who was assassinated uh, two and a half years ago, uh, uh, worked against the dangers of militarization and the dangers of the military uh, police. Um, um, but they're also having to address the issue of uh, the burning of the forests. Uh, and so it's so clear that an intersectional um, uh, approach involves uh, thinking deeply about racism in Brazil, about sexism and misogyny, about uh, transphobia. And um, as a matter of fact, it's very interesting that in the aftermath of the assassination of Mar Marielle Franco, uh, a black trans woman, uh, um, Erica Malanguino, was elected to the legislature in, in Rio. Um, and so the, thinking about this as a, as a global problem, as an international problem, the case, for example, of, um, of Adama Traore in Paris, who he was killed by the police about four years ago, and his sister, Asa Traore, has been very much involved in, in um, developing a, a campaign against racist police violence in France. Uh, uh, in the UK, um, a march took place just the other day under the rubric justice for George Floyd, but they marched to Grenville Tower, which of course was burned down in 2017. I think that we in this country can benefit from all of the connections that are being made in the responses, the, the global responses to uh, the lynching of, of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud uh, Aubrey. Um, but I think it also gives us the opportunity to think deeply about the limitations of the nation state. Uh, and of course, you know, Josh, Josh's uh, uh, comments about the militarization of, of the border uh, uh, are, are very relevant here. I think that um, um, this is a moment when it's becoming uh, absolutely clear that the nation state as we know it uh, is no longer possible. Uh, and so um, an international, a broad international perspective on this uh, you know, really helps us not only to imagine solidarity, but to think, think about what kind of future we want. When we say abolish prisons, when we say abolish the police, uh, uh, we are thinking uh, about a future in which we will have moved beyond the capitalist, bourgeois capitalist notion of the nation state. Um, I, I wonder what, what some of you think about um this point that Angela just made about the nation state and the kind of hollowing out of the liberal state, right? The kind of, that's a kind of hollowing it out and the kind of, the kind of 
displacement of a kind of neoliberal market-based um, sense of individual um, kind of make it in the world on your own, right? And so, and so th this kind of tension between both the, the environmental degradation and, and certain kinds of policies that, that we see being hollered out in the face of the lack of a certain kind of liberal state governance. And, and imagining a different kind of future, a different kind of possibility, a more internationally connected and global future. I mean, I wonder if you, if what, what, um, what you Oh, you're muted. I was muted? Yes. <laughs> the whole thing was muted? No, 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 just, just, just about two, five seconds. <laughs> yeah. No, I was just asking, what, what, beginning with you and, and uh, what, what kind of, uh, yeah, do you have any thoughts about this tension between uh, Angela's description of a kind of international understanding right. of our linkages, but also the hollowing out of the, the liberal state in which we're seeing the militarization of the police and the kinds of... Uh, violations and the kind of regulatory, uh, you know, turning the, the, the state into a kind of captive of corporate capital titans, mm -hmm. whose right. very job it is, is to destroy the very safeguards that might help uh, poor black and brown people. Right. And that's, you want me to start with that question? Yeah, sure. sure. <laughs> well, first of all, I, I agree a thousand percent with Angela's point that the nation state is as we know, it is unsustainable, uh, which is exactly why um, there's such uh, uh, a, a dedicated commitment on the part of authoritarian regimes to maintain the nation state. I mean, the nation state is, uh, is among many things, a kind of repressive arm to maintain power for capital, but not necessarily uh, creating boundaries around capital's movement. So capital, we know, is, is global, it's been moving globally forever, you know, um, but what we do, I shouldn't say forever, you know, let's be precise. It's been moving globally for a couple of centuries, for a few centuries. But what's, what's important here is the, the authoritarian regimes take on uh, a kind of nationalist rhetoric, even, upon, even as they maintain a kind of neoliberal order in which uh, they want to remove all barriers to capital's movement all, and they, they, they want to actually uh, create um, a, almost like a barrier against labor power, against uh, regulations that could preserve our life and our environment. They want it to basically create a, a kind of prophylactic, you know, so that you can have this sort of international domination of capital. Yet the nation state plays this role in doing exactly what we're seeing right now, um, and that is police power, military power. Um, now, the liberal state has, has a very short history <laughs> in America. There wasn't much of a liberal state in the 19th century. Uh, you know, you see the, the, the beginnings of a social democratic state uh, in the United States, for example, begins, I would argue, with the Reconstruction, when former, formerly enslaved people had a vision of a state that actually can help people, can redistribute land, that provide um, a public education, you know, that was the vision of a social democratic state, which then, you know, expands to Europe and elsewhere, but it didn't last very long. Um, and the plans to dismantle that liberal state, that, that social liberal state, and, by, and I want to be clear about this because liberalism of the 19th century is a liberalism of free markets. 
you know, it's not a liberalism of a broad state that's meant to protect human beings, environment, and provide social wage. But by the time we get to the 20th century, uh, the move towards a kind of neoliberal state precedes, I mean, it's, it, it, it begins before or at the time of fascism or even before fascism in the 1920s. So it's not a very long uh, period. Um, all I could say is that, um, again, we could talk about this forever, but just to leave you one thing about this question, I'd love to hear what other people have to say. Um, what Angela is laying out is a vision of internationalism which is in some ways the beginnings of uh, a kind of global vision that focuses on the conditions of the least of us, that creates the conditions of life and, 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 you know, for working people around the world. That internationalism drove so many movements that came to define the 20th century. And still to this day, one of the things about this moment we're in now is that is deeply international, it's deeply multiracial, uh, it is broad, and in some ways, it may build on previous movements and previous visions. It certainly builds on a decade of the struggles that Black Lives Matter in particular has laid out. But it also, you know, is something that I've never seen before. You know, I mean, it even extends beyond the Occupy vision. There's something going on here, which is interesting. And I think it's very fascinating that this internationalism uh, explodes not, not specifically out of uh, climate change issues, although that's part of it, not specifically out of a, a kind of colorblind um, uh, anti-capitalist vision, but specifically uh, growing out of anti-Black violence, racial violence, state violence. This is the catalyst for something that is so broad and visionary. And so, you know, it's, it's a very exciting time for questioning, uh, you know, what does the future look like, especially without the nation state? Mm -hmm. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I, I would only add that um, as many of us have written about in other places, and again, that we have learned from people who are struggling and who understand racial capitalism, both on page and in experience and life, and also as connected to what seem like discrete struggles, but instead are foundational for understanding their own. We know that this escalation of authoritarianism is something that is not just a demonstration of power, but is also a measure of white supremacy's fragility. And that is something that um, a lot of people are recognizing, I think, throughout the world, which makes this such an important international moment. I mean, to see, uh, to be made to feel as if this is some kind of um, uh, uniquely um, American problem, which is like part of what the master narrative intends at this point, is to make us feel even more isolated than we already. I mean, we already are, I've been feeling isolated for all these past 11 weeks. And now even more, there's now this narrative about this being an American thing. Even when you hear people who are liberals who start to talk about, oh, I can't believe this is happening in our country. And, you know, everybody's heard it, right? I can't believe we're in these times. These times have always been here. The only thing that has changed is, again, we've had enough, enough, 
right? So the internationalism of this moment is so important because it does build on other things, but it's also a mutual and widespread recognition that the nation state does, it doesn't hold. It cannot hold all of the dreams and the imaginings that we have for our communities, that we have in our own time. That is not a time, as our, our brother Damien Sojoyner so eloquently writes, it's not a time that is, is, it can be determined for us. We have our own pace, our own um, ideas about what freedom is. And I think one of the most interesting things that's happened over the past few days has been this like really flimsy fence that has been put around the White House um, because it just, it says so much about, you know, um, about the, the narrative that is, is that, like, that it's all narrative. There's no, there's nothing that, that, that fence isn't going to keep anybody out or in, right? But it's just the, the gesture that you're not welcome. This is our house, right? But it's, it's, a, it's a chain link fence, right? There, it's permeable. And what we see, if we pay attention to the building of all of these, these movements of especially the women and trans folks that are on the front lines, not only of death, but of dreaming, that we know that this, these, there are other stories, there are other narratives, there are other histories, there are other times, there are other paces that give us the answers that we're looking for, but also are so infuriating to Bolsonaro and to Trump and to so many folks because it, it calls the bluff. It, it, it says, this is, this is nothing. What you're doing is a lie. It's a fabrication. We refuse it because we have a completely different set of imaginaries that you can't even comprehend, and they're ready to be enacted. You know, um, I, I want to pick up on something, a, a line that, that uh, you suggested about the narrative and ask Josh, since he's in a communication school, um, you know, the dispute over... Uh, truth and fact, and we're all in the business of knowledge production, right? So it's interesting to kind of think about the kind of disputes that are happening in journalism, but at the level of movements and the street, the cell phone and the camera has produced a different kind of dispute, a different kind of reckoning, a different kind of archive. And I wonder, uh, beginning with you, Josh, if you have some thoughts about kind of how, how we ought to think about the, the, the powerful role of the mobility and the miniaturization of that camera and its ability to sort of document, narrate, construct, right? Give us a different kind of telling and sew together a different kind of imagination. Sure. Um, first thing I want to just say quickly is I've been thinking a lot this, this past month, especially um, about the, um, the late poet and writer and activist June Jordan, who I know many, um, in this group knew well and um, admire, um, who, who had a, among her many great things that she wrote said, um, this is what poets do. We worry words. And there are two ways to worry words. One is hoping for the greatest possible beauty in what is created. The other is to tell the truth. So the question of truth and documenting truth in this moment of a profound troubling of the truth in all kinds of ways that could be an hour long panel conversation. Um, but the nature of the truth of lynchings, the truth of anti-black violence, the truth of constant chronicle cyclical public murders um, 
we would not be talking the way we're talking, I don't believe, right now, without cell phones having increased the documentation of these atrocities to even begin to bear witness and to even begin to prosecute. I'm not saying the cell phone is the silver bullet. It's not saving. Um, and I'll get to that in a second. Um, but it, there's no doubt that certainly um, from Ferguson, at least from Ferguson on forward, but we could go back to 92 with the handicam of George Holiday and um, uh, the recording of the brutal beating of Rodney King by the LAPD, um, that the importance of citizen journalism on mobile devices, portable devices, has changed the way we talk about this and has also, I think, altered the um, potential and possibility for um, retribution uh, and getting us close to some kind of justice. Um, I want to specifically mention that um, my colleague at USC um, in the journalism school, Alyssa Richardson, um, actually has a brand new book that's just out on this called Bearing Witness While Black. Um, and it's, it's, it's really a history of this idea of, um, of citizen journalism uh, as a way of documenting terror uh, and making it impossible or um, harder to ignore, harder to not see. But at the same time, she just wrote a piece uh, that I also urge people to read in the conversation that ran last week, where she pulls back um, a little or complicates um, her history and in, in, in also warning that um, cell phone videos um, can also become a kind of exploitation. Um, and she actually says that they become like lynching photographs uh, and get distributed and circulated in ways that while on the one hand can produce this, um, uh, this culture of witnessing, um, on the other hand, can also cre create a desensitizing and a numbness um, to black death and can become vehicles of exploitation. So I think like all media technologies, there is no one way to, um, that, you know, it's not an either or, uh, it's being used in different ways. But certainly I don't think there's a doubt that um, cell phone video has changed the way we talk about the media's role um, in witnessing racial terror. Anybody else want to sort of piggyback on that or um, add something to that? Um, we're, we're getting close to um, a, a series of questions. And before taking them, there's one more theme that I think um, maybe it's worth uh, thinking a little bit about. And that is around, because um, there are a lot of questions of kind of about of the what to do. Yeah. Where are we and what can both individuals do and what does policy look like and those sort of things. And I was interested in your thoughts about the question of care. One of the things that I've been really struck by, and I know um, several of you have kind of written about this, is the kind of care that we see in the streets among people who are trying to not only comfort, but regard each other with a certain kind of uh, address, a certain way that's very different from um, I think what we become accustomed to. And so I was trying to think about care and mobilization and protest as all expressions of care of a different kind, a kind that we seldom think about in the kind of privacy of individualism, but a kind of collective care, collective regard. So I wonder if, if, uh, 
interview Hepson thoughts about the importance of care, uh, both in imagining a different kind of future, but also in the case of uh, the kinds of mobilization and protest that we've seen. Well, I'll begin by saying that I think it's um, extremely important to recognize the feminist dimension of these new movements uh, uh, and to um, think about a kind of uh, genealogy uh, that, um, that goes back to the emergence of Black Lives Matter and uh, feminist, new feminist notions of leadership that are collective, the incorporation of self-care into the very process of training organizers, uh, um, and, I, I, and of course, um, you know, who usually does the care? You know, what, uh, who is responsible for care work? Uh, who is responsible for reproductive <clears throat> labor? And so I think we see a, a, a convergence of uh, the um, sort of professionalized care and the, the extent to which uh, the healthcare industry has um, expanded uh, under uh, the various ways in which it has been privatized. As a matter of fact, in, in a sense, uh, I like the way Mike Davis pointed out that COVID-19 is a capitalist monster. It was created uh, by, by capitalism precisely as a result of this juggernaut of, of, of privatization. Uh, uh, but um, uh, I, you know, there was something about the, the witnessing of George Floyd's last breaths that has become a collective phenomenon that we, we've all been transformed because we've all seen the last nine minutes of this brother's life. And, and I think that that emotional connection has been very much lacking uh, in our uh, movements prior to this uh, more recent era. And it, it seems to me that, 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 that we all feel differently because we witnessed, uh, and I'm not discounting, Josh, your comments about uh, the ways in which uh, the collective witnessing of, 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 of um, lynching uh, can render one immune. Um, uh, but, um, but I think it's important to take into consideration the ways in which so much has come together. And I so appreciate Stuart Hall's uh, 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 mandate for conjunctural, conjunctural analysis. Uh, this is truly a um, conjunctural uh, moment that can contains possibilities. I, I, uh, I'm thinking about Arundhati Roy, who said that this, you know, this, this virus can be a portal. Uh, it can uh, lead us to something new, something different, new possibilities. Yeah. Um, 
can I just follow up on that? Because I think I just want to reiterate what Angela said about um, black feminist leadership, women of color leadership. I mean, Barbara Ramsby has this wonderful book, Making All Black Lives Matter, which, you know, charts the genesis of, of the movement and specifically grounded in black feminist movements and, and thought. And I remember I just heard Alicia Garza the other night talk about how, you know, she still gets these, you know, assertions that, you know, what, what the movement needs is like the male leader, the, the, the charismatic male, and people still hold on to that, but I think that's dying. It's dying because when you, when you walk in the streets, like right outside my door, we had protests down Beverly Boulevard, and you see all these amazing young people who care about each other, a lot of women of color at the forefront, courageous. All they have is a face mask. They're not carrying hammers or anything. They're ready there to, to basically defend. Um, and then the other thing that happens, while well, you have these amazing scenes um, of caring, um, of struggle, and then you also have this strange um, dichotomy between the police that can get um, in their own militarism, can get all the resources they need in healthcare workers, many of whom are immigrant women of color, um, women of color, some are immigrants, who can't get basic necessities to protect themselves. You know, this is the, the, the world we live in. But then there's one last thing we have to pay attention to is that, um, and this is, and we all know this, um, George Floyd's name is, is, is at forefront. Breonna Taylor's name comes up sometimes. Breonna Taylor was murdered as a result of a home invasion, which is one of the means by which the invasion of, of social domestic space, reproductive space, um, is one of the means in which black women of all ages are killed uh, and injured. And so Breonna Taylor's name needs to be mentioned, not secondary, but primary. You know, it's, it's not just another black body, but it's, it's what Kimberly Crenshaw and others and, and Angela and others have been saying all along. We need, to, we need to pay attention to the way in which black women are being killed. And how does that tie to care work? Well, it also ties to the way we think about humanity, our, our humanness, our relationship to one another. Um, and it just so happens that the women being killed, the women being killed and at the forefront of the struggle are women around the globe, by the way. I think uh, with that, we'll, we'll take a couple questions. And um, let's see, uh, the, the, there is one that says, uh, what are the small and moderate steps that individuals can take as well as the large scale steps that institutions need to make? That's a kind of two part, uh, institution and personal question. Anybody want to feel that one? I'll speak to it in a kind of a, a somewhat of a broad sense, but also in a, in a, I think, profoundly personal sense. There's, I've been doing a lot of panels and conversations. I'm sure a lot of us have do, been doing that work. And uh, a lot of folks are asking, you know, what can I do? And out of a sense of, of genuine good intention and, and purpose, People want to go to work now, and they want to hear from people who know um, what 
is possible and what is impactful. But it's really important to remember also that a lot of these things that we want to do can't be accomplished in the institutions as they are now set up. You know, they, a lot of them are built upon our exclusion. And so one class, one panel, one comment, one change in policy is obviously, I'm preaching to the choir here, we know that it need, we need more than that. What we need is a fundamental shift in the way that we have patterned ourselves to wait for an answer for from a leader, uh, usually a male leader, about where we go next. What we need is a fundamental introspection about the commitments that we are willing to make and the people that we are ready to roll with and how they roll. And the only way to do that is to study the people and to be in conversation with the people and sometimes to be quiet around the people who have been doing this work for a long time. So I, I want to I emphasize that because that is both an institutional question and we see that in the way that, that especially public-facing universities have had to change. I mean, how quickly the SAT was no longer required for admission, how quickly no grade, no grade minimums for A through G requirements, right? We've been saying this for years, that this doesn't work for our communities. But when the bottom line surfaced, that, that, that's how long it took, right? So we know, I mean, I like this question also about the, because, because we, we know that we've always had these answers and we have to, we have to not be afraid to make that shift, to unpattern ourselves, to ask about the one policy, one thing that we can do, and instead look at what, what's already being done. Um, study that, figure out where you wanna go, what magic, what flame as you, the moth, are bringing, being drawn to. So it's really, I think, a personal transformation that we have an opportunity for here. Uh, there's another question here about um, kind of multi-racial coalitions and um, organizing and sort of protests. And, and I think the question is really um, trying to think about how to attack white supremacy, but, but the role of multi-racial coalitions in this moment around that uh, particular kind of uh, challenge. Can I say uh, quickly that I, uh, there's so many Latinx uh, organizations and people who are doing the work of discovering the anti-blackness that has been in their communities, the anti-indigeneity, the, um, the, and, and the pro-black lives stance that people so wish to take. They are doing this work. Um, I've been in conversation um, with new and existing um, collectives of people, um, particularly uh, the Community Power Collective in Boyle Heights, all these folks who have also used social media, like I, I follow Nalgona Positivity Pride, who's always talking about anti-Blackness and the ways that we divest from that. These, are, I mean, on small and, and big levels, th this work is being done and, and, and this is the work that needs to continue. Anybody else? Here's another question. Uh, please comment on the economy of the violence, both the police mobilized violence and the accumulating COVID-19 deaths on the one hand, and the massive distribution of wealth to the super wealthy that accompanied the pandemic on the other hand.
Are you calling on us or should we jump in? <laughs> oh, yeah, just jump in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, please. <laughs> Anybody who feels um, they want to handle that. Well, I suppose I would say that um, this is really a, a moment of enlightenment. Uh, uh, you know, first of all, um, I'm impressed by the extent to which now uh, notions of systemic racism, structural racism, institutional racism have thoroughly permeated the mainstream. Uh, uh, you know, when have you heard uh, news reporters talking about structural racism, uh, uh, elected officials? Uh, uh, this is an extremely important moment because of work that we've been doing for such a long time, as Gay was pointing out, uh, is seems to be reaching a kind of, um, of fruition. Uh, uh, when the, the governor of Minnesota says, as a white man, I understand my privilege and, you know, so forth and so on. I'm, I've, I've kind of been, you know, witnessing the shift in um, um, uh, the, um, the rhetoric, the, the, the narratives that are uh, developing. Uh, um, but I'm especially interested in uh, Black Lives Matter and uh, the negative uh, responses that first uh, uh, occurred when the, the slogan Black Lives Matter emerged in the context of the Ferguson uh, uh, um, protests. So many people were saying, white people, so many white people were saying, well, shouldn't we say all lives matter? Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, one of the presidential candidates uh, in the last election uh, made that point that, that uh, black lives matter is too narrative. But I think now people are beginning to get it. And I've seen a lot of signs that, are say, that's, that say um, all lives will not matter until black lives matter. And Gay, you were talking about the, um, the wall that went up around the, the White House. Uh, I just saw an image this morning of workers uh, painting Black Lives Matter in bold, you know, the yellow paint that, that you see on the streets. The mayor has instructed them to paint Black Lives Matter on, I don't know what street it was, but it's the street that goes directly to the White House. Uh, uh, and so, you know, I think this, we have to savor this moment. Uh, um, there's, there's so much hope in this moment. Of course, the moment will not last, uh, but uh, the promises will last. And we have to hold on to those promises uh, uh, so that uh, we can, um, as uh, Robin and Gay and Josh and everyone has been pointing out, uh, so that we can, um, move in the direction of a better future. Mm -hmm. Can I um, jump in on this question, Herman? Um, on the last part about capital accumulation, uh, I just think it's worth remembering or noting that while there's a kind of public 
um, embrace of a kind of concept of progressive policies from government officials, particularly governors and mayors. We also see the continuation of the privatization of healthcare, privatization of emergency um, room healthcare doctors, for example, that corporations, you know, basically distribute them and they get paid for them. Um, we see people like Governor Cuomo, you know, quietly um, protecting CEOs of, of um, elderly care facilities so that they're not going to be sued. Uh, and meanwhile, against that, and this is what's so powerful about the, the, the programs, the agenda coming out of this struggle, the movement for Black Lives and, you know, the rising majority and all these different organizations, to call for something like defunding the police is about reducing police and, and taking the peace dividends from the war on Black people and actually moving it to things that we need to transforming the healthcare system so that we don't actually have to, it, it doesn't become the cash register for uh, corporate interests. Um, it, it, you know, and, and you think about what it means, for example, to decarcerate, honestly, I mean, Angela has been the pioneer on this and, and <laughs> no, no, no disrespect, but when, when Angela Davis said, you know, prisons need to be abolished, people thought she was crazy back then. I remember that. They said, oh no, that's ridiculous. And now people are talking about it seriously. And COVID-19 in some ways lays bare this at a moment when, uh, not just moment, but as a, a couple of decades in which incarceration became an investment, a state investment, private investment. And we're, we're about to see the possibility of these things finally being dismantled because we know that caging people is humane, it is torture, it is killing people. And that opens up the space for uh, kind of robust restorative justice. So the times are, are great. And, and like Gay says, there's no shortage of a plan to move to the future. There's no shortage. I mean, there's so many ideas that have been circulating for a long time. And now they're finally coming to fruition and, and being taken seriously. Uh, but at the moment, when we face a catastrophe of possible fascism, but that's another conversation. <laughs> I mean, if I could add one quick thing. Yes. Um, I, I, it's, I, I just wanted to throw in a part of the accumulation conversation um, and part of what Robin was, was mentioning. One aspect that we haven't talked much about um, is the role that um, corporations and creative industries have been playing over the past month, especially. I think one of the really interesting um, new developments with, with what's been happening over the past 10 days has been way more than in 2014, the complete mainstreaming of corporate care about these issues. Back to also to you know, that question of what care means under neoliberal capitalism. One of the things it means is that corporations start caring and that used to be sporadic and now it's everywhere. I mean, at least Instagram is just one long corporate advertisement of corporate caring about black lives, which is of course not a bad thing. This is a good thing, but it, it is, I think we need to be watchful and worried about the way that um, longitudinal movements get compressed within a week into a new ad deck um, and actually become part of increasing the brand power of individual brands and actually not increasing the movement power of movements. Um, I, I, I've been writing last, the last week a lot 
online about the music industry, which um, has tons of companies have donated lots of money and there's been really great visibility and that's all wonderful. Um, but none of it is actually addressing the history of uh, royalty robbery, um, the history of unfair contracts, um, the way that the profiting off of black music has been, has been used to build black music empires um, without black people. Um, and so I, I think that the way that co contemporary corporate culture can also increase accumulation on the back of social movements um, is not new necessarily, but I, boy, I think it's been growing in an intensity over the past month that, that I, I haven't seen before. There's, there's another question I wanna uh, grab from the um, submissions and use it as a kind of transition to um, a segment about projects and sort of uh, uh, the ways in which um, the future might be imagined and the role of culture and that sort of thing. And, and the question is posed this way. Um, do you believe that there are two different timelines of freedom? Often we group freedom into one when it was gained in the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, but other groups, specifically African-Americans, still don't have that level of freedom. Um, a kind of parsing and opening of both the temporality of freedom and its conception. Um, Gay, you want to take that one? Or anybody, Gay or Robin or? I, I, I feared I'd talk too much, but very, very quickly, um, I can't see that as two timelines because one's freedom is dependent on the other, unfreedom. In other words, they're dialectically related. The, the, the freedom of the, of the eight, of 18th century bourgeois democratic revolutions, whether we're talking about France, whether we're talking about the United States or elsewhere, was often dependent on enslavement of black people and, and the dispossession of indigenous people and enslavement of indigenous people. So it's not as if they're like timelines that operate parallel, you know, um, and, and one could argue that even for whites whose freedom depends on the unfreedom of others. There are those at the bottom rung of whiteness who don't even recognize the, the level to which their own subjugation is tied to the unfreedom of others. Anybody else? Um, then, then maybe, you know, we were talking earlier about uh, uh, trying to also think with young people uh, about possibilities and about hope and about futures. And, and I wonder if um, we might turn to ways in which um, you're thinking about those kinds of questions. And, you know, uh, one of them is kind of the role of culture, imagination, almost, I mean, everybody here has written about music uh, and thought about music in one form or another. And, and in this moment of kind of confinement and the slow time of COVID, but the hot time of the streets. Um, I wonder if um, you think that um, culture kind of is a repository for um, generating this kind of imagination, the kind of hope, the kind of uh, way forward um, that could also be very helpful in this moment. Uh, yeah, Gay, you want to take that one? Sure. I mean, you know, I think all people who are culture workers and freedom workers know that, know the power of music and visual art, but especially around music. I mean, 
I, and I'll just say, say sonically, you know, um, right now we are all feeling so isolated as we've, you know, I've already said, um, and we all know, um, but, but when you know music as part of freedom struggles, you also know sounds as part of freedom struggles. And so you know that the components that people choose to put into songs signal to a past that is a sort of insider story, but can, that is part of a broader web and a bigger story that we can all participate in. And so there's an incredible amount of refuge in music, but there's also a kind of strength that we know, because we know the power and its use in organizing. And I think people like the National Day Labor uh, organizing network we've used instead of you know going in and giving speeches on corners in south central LA um, or in um, east LA when where people are congregating waiting for contractors to come and pick up labor instead of coming in with a lot of words people come in with a harana to organize on the corner um, there, there are stories like this all over the world and so right now I feel like if anything I mean, this is where this is this is also where the leadership is is to find uh, what we've always known in these messages that are part of the sonic landscape of of, of the soundtrack of freedom, and those are songs and and messages that are not always explicitly about freedom, but instead um, are are again a soundtrack of a felt meaning and a felt memory and a shared collective around what we experience together and how also what's going to be the soundtrack of our triumph and also our persistence. So I mean, it, I think all of us know um, all of us know this power. In some ways, it's it's not speakable. You know. Can, uh, Herman, may I say a few words? Um, yes, please, yes. Okay. Well, you know, one of the reasons I think why people all over the world are drawn to Black struggles in the U.S. has to do with the global um, character of Black music. Uh, the fact that Black music has traveled all over the globe and with that music um, have traveled the stories of black resistance. Uh, um, it's, um, uh, you know, when one, when, when one asks, you know, why is it that, that there has been so much solidarity to black struggles in the US, uh, uh, but not nearly the same level of solidarity, uh, for example, for Palestinians, uh, uh, not nearly the same level of, of, of solidarity for, for Kurdish people who are, are, are struggling in, in, in Syria. Um, and I make this point because I think that with, um, with the that, that um, impact of black music also comes responsibility responsibility, not only to black people, but to the people of the world. Uh, um, and, you know, oftentimes there's a tendency uh, for uh, black people to feel as if um, we've suffered so long and so hard, there has been so much death uh, that, uh, that we have no space for anything else. Uh, uh, and, 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 and I think that that's, um, 
that the, the culture, the music has opened up new spaces and, it, and has made it possible for Black people not only to use that music, that culture um, in struggles for Black freedom in the U.S., but it is open space uh, for um, solidarities. I'm, I'm, I'm still so impressed by the Black Palestinian solidarities that emerged in the immediate aftermath of Ferguson. And I would like to see um, the same thing happen uh, during this moment that uh, as Black struggles uh, opening up rather than closing down uh, uh, and being inviting and recognizing that we have um, a great deal to um, share with with, uh, Kurdish people in uh, Rojava, for example, who are also trying to abolish the police, uh, who are also trying to use feminism Um, radical uh, feminist notions uh, to reconstruct of their society. And of course, music helps us to see that this is possible. Or even when it does not appear to be possible at the moment, music holds the promises. Music holds promises for a better future. Beautiful, thank you. That's beautiful. Um, thank yeah, you. yeah, please. Shout out uh, D Nice because D Nice has been hosting Club Quarantine, and I was I, I don't know why I was surprised on like some of the worst and most fearful nights of the protest to log on and see him there anyway, um, playing for us a soundtrack that is all about our joy and congregation despite our isolation. We find a way to come together. How only through the music. I mean, this is the moment when it's the music that makes everything possible. So there's 15,000 people that join in just 10 minutes because the music is good. So I, I think there's kind of, especially in this moment, no better, no better evidence of the power of Black music made by beautiful people. <laughs> Anybody else want to comment? Um, either either on, on music or other forms. Um, I actually was thinking about... Um, I would just add maybe yeah, one quick please. thing, Herman. On the music front, just as a footnote, a really interesting, Angela, when you were talking about um, uh, kind of the, the way the Black music can become a language of solidarity through musical fandom, even. I think one really interesting development this past week has been the way that K-pop, which is so rooted um, in black popular music that K-pop fans have become this like incredible mobilized online resistance army um, who have used their fandom as K-pop fans to actually um, work together to crowdsource opposition to law enforcement. And when law enforcement agencies were calling for citizen journalists to send in videos of protests, K-pop fans just flooded um, the social media feeds and sent in K-pop videos instead. Um, and, and we're actually kind of, it, it's become a mobilizing force, um, which I think is, is incredibly important. Um, and the other thing I wanted to say, Herman, you mentioned artists and we're not going to have time to even talk about the role of visual arts and, uh, in this conversation. Um, but I just want to mention like, for example, two organizations in Los Angeles, um, and Gay already mentioned Endelon, who I want to underline just do extraordinary work, um, at the level of, uh, grassroots activism using the arts and culture as a key building block of their work um, is also um, some, Emer- some Everything, which is the artist Lauren Halsey. Um, uh, her new organization, the Some Everything 
Community Center um, in South Los Angeles. Um, and it's important that Lauren, who's a visual artist, also, um, um, also describes herself as a fantasy architect, a fantasy architect. So this, this, this altered destiny, speculative future possibilities in her work, but also the work of Alma Backyard Farms in Compton, um, who use urban gardening uh, as a tool of building community for the formerly incarcerated and their families. Um, and use a back to the earth to, to create new gardens of community, to grow solidarity on the ground. Um, and I think the role of food in this and the role of um, urban gardens and community food organizations um, of putting food also back into the center of these movements is, 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 is obviously crucial. Right. Let, let me jump in on that, on that very issue. Uh, poetry, poetry, poetry. Um, certainly music has is poetry, but I actually, I know our time's running out, so I want to read something um, which actually builds on everything people said, especially what Josh just said. And, you know, my friend Betsy Esch sent me this poem by Ross Gay called A Small Needful Act, uh, sorry, A Small Needful Fact. And it reads, is that Eric Garner worked uh, for some time for the Parks and Rec Horticultural Department, which means perhaps that with his very large hands, perhaps, in all likelihood, he put gently into the earth some plants which most likely, some of them, in all likelihood, continue to grow, right? Continue to do what plants do, like house and, like house and feed small and necessary creatures, like being pleasant to touch and smell, like converting sunlight into food, like making it easier for us to breathe. And if I have to leave anything, it's these words, you know, which capture, I think, the essence of the future and the past, because this is what we've been doing, putting our hands in the earth, you know, making sure that we can breathe, you know, building and living by what Cedric Robinson calls faith, something deep, and which is why to define our lives by social death doesn't quite capture the way we make breath always. Yeah, I just want to um, um, point out that uh, there's a wonderful album by Terry Lynn Carrington and her group Social Science, uh, uh, which was released not that long ago, but it really is the soundtrack of this moment. Uh, and in many ways, oftentimes music and poetry, art, um, allows us to imagine what we do not yet know. Uh, and I also want to plug Cecile mclaurin Salavon. She has a, a, a project that is going to be uh, posted um, tomorrow at uh, on YouTube uh, uh, at 4 p.m. Eastern. Uh, Cecile mclaurin Salavon, who is is the most amazing jazz singer you've ever heard. I just want to say I've I've uh, there's lots of concerts that I wish I would have seen in my lifetime, and I thought I knew what they were, and then when I found out that she played in your living room, Angela. <laughs> well, that's only because her concert got canceled while they were doing soundtrack, <laughs> and the band came over to the house and they did it. It was it was amazing. It, it was, was it was it was ogress. It was really incredible. <laughs> Now yes. I feel worse, but yeah. 
and and I can testify I had the the rare, the pleasure of being there and it was really extraordinary it was yeah. just it was amazing so um you know I can't think of a a, a more apt and um hopeful place to to leave our conversation. Well, uh, Herman, before yes. you leave, let's yeah. all point out that all of us have a relationship to the University of California yes. Humanities Research Institute and the work of the Institute. Uh, thank you very much, David, uh, has been so important, not only in um, generating um, ideas about the uh, absolute um, um, significance of the humanities, uh, but also about the larger community. So thank yes. you very much, uh, David, for yes. uh, keeping and UCHRI going. And all around the world, the work that you yeah. do. Yeah, and, and your fabulous staff and, and uh, for making um, this forum possible. Um, and thanks for all the people who tuned in and uh, stayed with us. I'd like to thank each of uh, our guests, our panelists, our colleagues, our friends, um, Josh Kuhn, Angela Davis, Robin Kelly, and Gay Teresa Johnson. Thank you so much. It's been really rich and enlivening and hopeful, and, and I thank you immensely. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. If I might add my uh, profound sense of gratitude to you all for jumping in um, almost before you were called. It was extraordinary. And for this incredible conversation in mapping our world and the possible worlds for us, it's been an extraordinarily insightful, critical and uplifting conversation you know, with a different voice, uh, a kind of counter-register, uh, no longer his majesty's voice, one could say in every sense of this term, but accounted to it envisaging and giving voice to different ways of being in the world and, and indeed to different worlds. Um, maintaining, just to end with where Angela started us off, maintaining and sustaining the intensity of the moment in critical thought and creativity and activity in making these worlds together, in lending our shoulders in terming what I've called seemingly futureless futures, into solidarity futures of vision and caring and justice that you've all offered us. Thanks so much. Um, a huge virtual um, applause from around the world, from the you know six and a half thousand people that have been listening to you all. Um, whoop it up at home. We'll hear you and come on, come on out, and we'll do this thing together. Thanks so much.